Welcome to Journey with Jesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called From the Old Eden to the New Jerusalem, the book of Revelation and the Healing of the Nations. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 25th, 2010. There are 66 books in the Christian Bible, but none of them has provoked more controversy, esoteric speculation, or misunderstanding than the very last one, the Book of Revelation. In the fourth century, notable scholars like Chrysostom and Eusebius even hesitated to include Revelation in the canon. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther described the book as, quote, neither apostolic nor prophetic. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. I stick to the books which present Christ to me clearly and purely. John Calvin wrote commentaries on every book in the New Testament, except the book of Revelation. And today, among Eastern Orthodox believers, Revelation is the only book that isn't read in their public liturgy. So-called apocalyptic literature like Revelation is difficult to decipher, even for careful readers. As a genre of writing that flourished from about 200 BC to 200 AD among both Jews and Christians, apocalyptic literature is characterized by visions, symbols, numerology, fantastic beasts, dragons, and sea monsters. Even a biblically, biblically illiterate person knows that the number 666, Revelation 13, 18, portends something ominous. But what does a gigantic red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns mean? are all of Revelation's cosmic calamities. Other people complain that Revelation is too negative about the present earthly world and too focused on a future heavenly world. But you might think differently if Roman emperors like Nero or Domitian had slaughtered your family, or if John Jaweed militia in Darfur had raped your women strafed your village with jets, then burned it to the ground. For people in Darfur, Congo, or for example, Haiti, a literal hell has come to earth. And therein, I think, lies one key to making sense of the book of Revelation. In contrast to rich white Christians in the West, Poor Christians in Latin America, Asia, and Africa know all too well about corrupt dictators, mass displacements, starvation from forced famines, ethnic wars, political repression, crushing debt, and grinding poverty. These Christians read the ap apocalyptic themes of a book like Revelation as directly relevant to their everyday lives. Divine intervention, healing, liberation, dreams, visions, miracles, and prophecies 
are for these Christians lived realities rather than deconstructed myths. Whether in ancient Rome or in modern Zimbabwe, the book of Revelation articulates the longing of people for, of, of people for God to intervene in human history and to make all to, and to make right all the wrongs. We read in Revelation 6:10, "How long, O Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood?" In the book of Revelation, the ancient Roman Empire embodies and epitomizes all the forces of social violence, political oppression, religious persecution, economic exploitation, and cultural hubris that wreaks so much devastation in human history. It's not clear which emperor ruled when John wrote from his banishment to the rocky island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, but he nevertheless excoriates Rome as, quote, Babylon the Great and the mother of prostitutes. Revelation 17.5. Revelation for John in chapter 18.10 is the city of power. John sees Rome as the stage where the human drama unfolds among, quote, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free person. Revelation 6.15 Because of her many crimes against humanity, Revelation predicts divine judgment for the ancient city of Rome. We read in chapter 18, verses 16 to 20, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven, Rejoice, rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Furthermore, in Revelation, Rome is not only the literal ancient empire. By extension and by comparison, Rome also represents all domination systems organized around power, wealth, seduction, intimidation, and violence. In whatever historical form it takes, empire is the opposite of the kingdom of God as disclosed in Jesus. We thus rightly ask not only why ancient Rome incurred God's judgment, but also what places and powers in persons today constitute imperial Rome and thus face a similar fate. <clears throat> Revelation warns about a dramatic reversal in human history because of divine justice. In a biblical version of what goes around comes around, God gives back to Rome as she has given to others. We read, He will pay her back double for what she has done. 
makes her a double portion from her own cup. 18.6 Revelation also anticipates a comprehensive restoration rooted in divine mercy. In this regard, it tracks with Paul's remark about the redemption of the entire cosmos by a God who was the father of every family in heaven and on earth. Ephesians 1, 14 and 15. The biblical story that began in Genesis with a fall in a garden ends in Revelation with a restoration in a city. The narrative travels from ancient Eden to the new Jerusalem. On the very last page of the Bible, John describes this plot fulfillment as, quote, the healing of the nations. And he imagines nations from around the world streaming to the holy city. In this week's lectionary reading, we read how divine mercy in the new Jerusalem heals all the human degradations of old Rome. We read in chapter 7, 16, and 17, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the new Jerusalem, where all the nations gather, there will be no death, no mourning, no crying, or any pain. 21 verse 4. Although in a few places John refers to the large but limited number of 144,000 Jews, he ultimately expands the scale and scope of the cosmic consummation to include a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This notion of a limitless ethno-linguistic inclusion is sounded several times. Chapter 7-9, chapter 5-9, 11-9, 13-7, and chapter 14-6. Every tribe, every tear. I recently read about a tribe of 350 people called the Paraha. Buried deep in a Brazilian rainforest, the Paraha have fascinated cultural anthropologists and especially linguists. Their language is based upon just eight consonants and three vowels. And according to Dan Everett, one of a very few people who have mastered their language, the Paraha have no numbers, no fixed color terms, no perfect tense, no deep memory, no tradition of art or drawing, and no words for all, each, every, most, or few. But in fact, we can say with confidence that the every tribe and every tier of revelation also includes the Paraha as readily as it does ancient Rome or modern Congo. And now for further reflection. How do you explain the wild success of the Left Behind series about the end times with its sales of 60 million books?
Can you think of modern-day imperial Rome's? In what sense is empire, Rome or otherwise, the opposite of the kingdom of God as disclosed in Jesus? Do we too readily dismiss apocalyptic literature as bizarre and void of practical applications? And finally, what do third world Christians have to teach first world believers about reading the Bible? For books this week, I review Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wu Dunn, Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, New York, Knopf, 2009, 200. 94 pages. Nicholas Kristof, columnist for the New York Times, and his wife Cheryl Wu Dunn were the first married couple to win a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of democracy in China in the Tiananmen Square protests. Kristof then won a second Pulitzer for his coverage of the Darfur genocide. Their newest book might be their best yet and I count it as one of the most important books that I've read in the last few years. <clears throat> it's more comprehensive in scope and treats what might be the most important human rights issue of the day, gender side, or the systematic oppression of women and girls in the developing world. Gender side takes many forms and Christoph and Wu Dun have witnessed most of them up close and personal, rather than at a safe distance. They've trekked to isolated Chinese villages with no roads or electricity. They've gone undercover to interview girls in Cambodian brothels, and sat under trees in remote Burundi to listen attentively to the stories of women. This book fo focuses on three major areas. First, sex trafficking and forced prostitution. Second, gender-based violence, including honor killings and mass rape. And third, maternal mor mortality. Much of the book makes for painful reading, with graphic accounts of bride burning, female genital mutilation, sexual selective abortions, foot binding, female infanticide, in interviews with teenage girls who work as prostitutes seven days a week, 15 hours a day. But for all that, this is a remarkably positive and inspirational book, for its ultimate focus is on empowerment and not only exploitation. From start to finish, there are dozens of stories about people and organizations, large and small, that have made radical changes for the good all around the world. Schools, hospitals, microfinance programs, and programs to end deeply enculturated practices like female genital mutilation all demonstrate how change is possible. Christoph and Wudan thus hope to recruit you to join an incipient movement to emancipate women and fight global poverty by unlocking women's power as economic catalysts. 
There's so much to love about this book. It's broad and deep in its geographical scope. The authors are sensitive to the many pitfalls of incultural imperialism, but that doesn't stop them from asking politically incorrect questions, like whether Islam is misogynist. They're unusually equitable in their criticisms of partisan ideologies. In their view, for example, the religious right needs to move beyond its sanctimony, whereas the secular left has a view with has a problem with snobbery. Christoph and Wudan know the literature on development economics and have attended the NGO conventions, but they've also jettisoned the air-conditioned SUV to learn from real people on the ground. I especially appreciated their wariness about exaggerated claims of miracle programs and plans. They have a healthy sense of skepticism and a high regard for the complexity of the problems. They base their appeal on both economic self-interest, but also on ethical principle. And finally, their last few chapters are intensely practical, concluding with four steps you can take in the next ten minutes, and then an appendix with about 45 organizations that support women's causes. The title of the book, Half the Sky, by Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. For film this week, I review It's Complicated from 2009. This is a movie that requires you to lower your cinematic standards and to accept it for just what it is a fluffy romantic comedy built around four nameplate actors and targeted at aging baby, baby boomers. Jane, played by Meryl Streep, has been divorced for 10 years after 20 years of marriage to Jake, played by Alec Baldwin. Her three young kids and future son-in-law Harley, played by John Krasinski, no longer live at home and that makes for an awfully quiet and lonely house at night. But Jane does look forward to a major remodel of her hacienda in the hills of Santa Barbara, thanks to the capable architect Adam, played by Steve Martin. But problems arise when Jake falls back in love with his former wife, Jane, and initiates an affair with her despite having remarried a trophy wife with a tattoo and a five-year-old. Jane has mixed feelings, especially because she and architect Adam have a thing going. I have to say that parts of this script are horrendous, and at times Meryl Streep hops around her garden and kitchen like Martha Stewart. But on the other hand, there are some poignant moments and good laughs about the mysteries of aging love. It's complicated, right? The title of the film, It's Complicated. And finally this week, we've posted a poem by the famous Robert Louis Stevenson, 1850 to 1894. Robert Louis Stevenson was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, the only child of an intensely religious family. 
When he was 17, he entered the University of Edinburgh, ostensibly to study engineering like his father. But even as a young student, Robert Louis Stevenson knew that he was destined to be a writer. Of course, he's best remembered for his novel, Treasure Island, but he was an otherwise prolific writer. When he died of a stroke in his house on Samoa at the age of 44, his collected works ran to some 30 volumes. The title of the poem, The Celestial Surgeon, Robert Louis Stevenson. If I have faltered more or less in my great task of happiness, if I have moved among my race and shown no shining morning face, if beams from happy human eyes have moved me not, if morning skies, books, and my food, and summer rain knocked on my sullen heart in vain, Lord, thy most pointed pleasure take, and stab my spirit broad awake. The Celestial Surgeon by Robert Louis Stevenson Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 25th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.